Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Routes, the program where we gather every day at this time. Andrew Henderson, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is we continue to address the issues between rural and urban America. It is Tuesday, that day that we come with our Across the Pond version of Rural Route. Andrew, are you hung, are you hung up in a clamp again? Do you live in a silage clamp? Good morning, USA. Yes, I do live in a clamp today. And I want to welcome Dr. Dave Davis, who is Mr. Conserved Forage UK. So how does that sound? That sounds fabulous. Hi, Dave. Hi, everybody. Lovely um, to be with you. Let me just say it right off the bat, Dave. He seems to have a little extra spunk in his uh, Cheerios this morning. He maybe had a little too much uh, habanero on his eggs for breakfast today. He is on fire, so just stay out of his way. Yeah, well, I'm on fire because this is my favorite subject for the next five to ten years. This is where we, as in agriculture, reclaim the solid ground of sustainability and environmental issues for the whole world. Agriculture is the solution to the world's climate change issues. And today is one of the first steps on being able to show you how here in the UK, and I'm sure in the US, we can help make that story come to fruition. So the gentleman that's with me has helped divide, devise a way of analysing forage from when it's grown in the, in the ground to by the time it gets through the animal and proving that we're actually consuming more carbon than we're actually emitting into the atmosphere. And if you think about that and the potential of that, when the rest of the world is spewing out carbon, agriculture is the solution, isn't it, Dave? It is the solution. We need to uh, make sure that we look after these things correctly and maximize the utilization of them to ensure that we are part of that solution. Uh, Dr. Dave, suddenly I'm concerned because <laughs> the entire world now is talking about how we can sequester carbon, how we can bury carbon back in the soil, how we can keep more of it in the cow than in the atmosphere. Carbon is plant food. Are we going to have starving plants? <laughs> Only Trent could come up with that one. But well, that's on, a Dave. true story. No, it's a true story. Yeah, all right. Go on. I think that's highly unlikely. I mean, the, the carbon cycle is so um, robust that uh, I'm sure there'll always be enough carbon for the uh, plants. I think we just need to make sure that we are looking after that carbon and making sure that most of it's used for productive response and that we're um, just looking after it and using it properly. And it's, you know, there'll be plenty there for that with those plants. Speaking of carbon, I think there's carbon in the form of four wheels backing up. I hope they don't back over Andrew and he becomes part of the clamp. <laughs> it's a very, very nice JCB that's actually, uh, I can, I think you might better see the corner of it there as it's, yeah. uh, as it's moving around. Oh, yeah. There but you that's go. one of the other great exports from the UK. Fantastic uh, machinery <laughs> that's used them. Um, you, you just while we're on the plug type of thing that's been able to use this farm has 2,900 cows so the most important thing on the farm is the 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 forage they produce on this farm and this farm has made huge steps forward with their bunkers you can see the concrete walls on either side 
you can see yeah. the use of the shear grab and hopefully you can see that apart from the fact that it's a very tall clamp there's very little waste behind you Clint. Brent. I also want to say, Ralph, that it is um, it really is awakening for people in the states listening to you say that you were at a nearly three thousand cow dairy because the common perception is here you don't have cow dairies that big. Well, you know these are hidden secrets that we we tell some people we like, but not many. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is very noticeable, and I know you and I have talked about it, but there is zero waste there in that bunker. I don't think Dave would agree with you, but Dave, what do you think of this bunker that you're looking at here? Yeah, it's not bad. I, I would very much disagree with what you just said there. There's there's probably upwards of 15% waste there if we did a proper wow. analysis of it. And, you know, the average clamp will be 20 25%. And uh, one of the, well, Mr. Silage US that recently passed away, uh, Keith Bolson, said that if we could get ten, down to 10%, we were doing very well in terms of losses in, in silage clamps. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it, it's visible waste is low. That's, that's one of the key yeah. things. The visible waste on that clamp is very low. Yeah, yeah. Now, well, actually, it's no different with, uh, you know, I've Dave, just so that you know, I've raised, provided daily care for over one million animals. And most of those obviously were pigs. And my father taught me early on that, you know, feed waste in that feeder is huge. And he told me, he said, Trent, if you see feed being wasted by the pig, there's probably a 15% waste. 15%. No matter what your feedstuffs is very significant to the bottom line and and really to where does that feed go if it's not being wasted, it's not being utilized. We can't afford that in today's world. We can't afford it economically and we can't afford it in terms of climate change either. And that's, you know, one of the targets I've got is to the, the only way we're going to push that carbon emissions from agriculture to net zero is by reducing that waste. And waste is the simplest thing we can reduce. And it's the thing that farmers will see the economic benefits from. And we can sell that to the consumer in that carbon zero um, production systems. But of course, there's also other benefits here, Trent, because when you quantify the waste, which is basically aerobic spoilage due to the fact that there's air certainly high up on a clamp where we haven't been able to consolidate it properly that waste also produces some um, yeasts and molds that can cause you know in in intestinal slight intestinal intestinal problems in the animal which reduce mm. the animal's feed conversion rate so you're helping the animal's health by protecting the forage in this way so that's why there's so many benefits along the line if you harvest it at the right time to, to main, make sure you've got the right energy protein etc but also if you look after it in the clamp there's a there's a health benefit to the animal and and actually a health benefit to those that consume the products as well okay so if we if we look, look at the um, losses there and we look at what i call invisible losses which is basically the production of carbon dioxide and water for every 5% losses, we actually lose 6.5% devalue uh, as an approximation. And when we lose devalue, actually, we increase the methane emissions in the animal because we're actually feeding them more fiber. So this is part of this healthy cow reducing methane. The less fiber, fiber is very important, but we don't want to 
overdo the fiber fraction. And when we have higher fiber, we have more methane. So this is why looking at these losses, there's so many implications from that in terms of animal health, economics, and, and carbon footprint. Can we start, you know, we need to really start at where, can we start right at the beginning there, Dave, and go, go through with Trent where, you know, farmers need to be thinking about the day they harvest, what, what the weather's like, and all the things a farmer should be considering that we think people take for granted, but the weather changes everywhere. What are the things that farmers should be looking out for right from the day that they decide to harvest and when they decide to harvest? Well, the first thing is that we, we, we need farmers to stop thinking about yield in the field because yield of forage does not equal yield of milk. And we need to be looking at quality. So if you've got a green crop, be that alfalfa, grass, then we need to be making sure that it's highly digestible. And with those two in particular, we need to be considering how long we wilt in the field and hitting our target dry matter quickly. And if I just give you one example, you can lose 6% of the D value in the field whilst it's wilting because you're losing sugar. And that then mm. increases the undigestible fraction, reduces the quality, increases your, your, your um, emissions. So it's, it's all about that. Dave, just for the benefit of our, our listening audience, you, you use the term milk, but it really wouldn't be any different if you're cattle in Absolutely. a feed yard and you're putting on pounds of beef. It, it, it's, it's, Sorry about right. this, I'm just moving. So yeah, it, it, it is all about yield of product. And I think for too long we've focused on yield of forage in the field and yield of forage does not equal yield of product. It's mm. all about quality at harvest and then making sure that we do two things. We harvest rapidly and we consolidate well in the clamp to remove oxygen. If we do that, we can maintain those quality parameters during the ensiling phase and we can reduce uh, reliance on non-forage parts of the ration and we can reduce our emissions during the process. I have to go to a break. It is Rural Routes. Andrew Henderson, we will continue to come to you from the clamp, Dave. That's what we do. Dave Davies, our guest, talking about the quality of feed. I want to remind you about Neogen, the opportunity to test the genetics, testing genetics of plants. We also need to test the genetics of these animals, know what Leos are present, and make sure the genomes are going to give us the efficiency that we're talking about here with Dave Davies as well. Neogen.com. It's all about your genetic future. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more Roll Route after this. Welcome back to Roll Route. Trent Luce alongside Dr. David Davies joining us from the UK. Andrew is piled. He's in a pile. He's in a clamp. <laughs> His in- favorite place, a clamp. Silage clamp. Yeah. But this one, I think, is going to put a smile on Dave's face because for a long time, most farmers make their silage in an arch. Like you can see behind you, there's an arch on the maze. But one of the things that Dave's been able to do with some of the work that he's been doing on how to maximize the value of forage in terms of its nutritional value and by reducing waste is to try and persuade farmers to produce a concave um, um cut of silage and you can see behind me i'll just move out just quickly can you see that the line that's concave below the maze yes i can and that that silage is last year's silage and we've just analyzed it and it's lost 
none of its um, quality at all. It's absolutely still 100% fantastic silage. And that's the sort of thing that it looks simple, but it's actually quite hard to do that, isn't it, Dave, to actually fill a clamp like that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's all about focus and attention to detail, which many things on farms are. But if we can get that good consolidation and putting it in up to the top of the walls in a concave manner, but then it does depend on your top sheet afterwards. We need to go to the convex um, method afterwards. But we really do. I mean, too many people think about focusing on the centre of the clamp. And, and when you've got a walled clamp, you need to focus on the on the wall region more because that's where you've got more problems with consolidation. So doing it like that is absolutely spot on. You know, I, I just want to interject because I, I'm sure we have a lot of people listening that say, boy, you spend a lot of time talking about the feed supplies for these cows and things like that. I don't care if you're in the, the cattle ruminum feeding business or not. What we're talking about here, Dave, really speaks to the efficiencies that we've acquired in modern day agriculture. And I just want to quickly give these numbers because it speaks to this particular aspect. And I don't think uh, what we're really talking about here is we haven't gotten close to where we could be in 1900 it required 10 acres of land to produce enough food to feed one person for a year and in 2020 it takes less than a third of an acre to produce enough food to feed one person for a year and this is what what we're talking about here today is just one of the small components that pushes us to be more efficient and i think the overall message that both andrew and dave are sharing we're not where we could be yet is that a fair analogy, Dave? Yeah, certainly in the ruminant sector, we've got, I would say, easily another 20% just on management issues to, to gain, if not more. And wow. it is really focusing that, and that's how we're going to solve the issues of, of feeding more with less. And that's the and, and, and also, just to back that up, that the more we do this side of th- things, which is relatively new because we're – before we used to concentrate on growth of crops rather than the quality. So now we're looking at the right micronutrients in the soil to encourage the right type of growth and then cut the forage at its optimum um, stage of growth to maximize the energy and protein content of that forage so that it has more nutritional value to the animal. So everything is always moving towards a, a higher quality of forage. It's a bit like they're, they're trying to make thoroughbred grass and thoroughbred maize. And it's that sort of technology by feeding the right natural nutrients to the soil that's going to be the next big thing in terms of food quality. We believe and we know that by really implementing this sort of program, we can deliver a much better tasting dairy and beef product because we're taking more um, disease threat away from the animal by improving the health and quality of the forage. It's a great story. It, it is, and it speaks to also that a lot of people are concerned that farms get too big. And right away, I, I went to, Andrew, you said, here's a, a dairy in the UK that has nearly 3,000 cows. Well, you also have to have quite a bit of land, and you want to know that the nutrients were in the soil that produces the forage that are going to produce the feed that you're going to feed to get to your milk. We have the same thing happening in the United States. I have friends who are in all species, chickens, turkeys, pigs, beef production, dairy production, who are now controlling the inputs at the farm level that produce the feed that they then feed to their livestock. Yeah. And so you can't just produce what you want 
and think that you're automatically going to have a market. You have people who are looking looking for specific ingredients that are available that are going to number one always improve the health and well being of an animal. That that's paramount if you're going to be profitable in today's world and particularly tomorrow's world of milk, meat, and egg production, Dave. Absolutely. I mean, it is all about connecting that food chain, feed food chain. And, you know, I've got one of my things I say a lot is healthy plants, healthy livestock, healthy humans. And it, mm-hmm. it, it flows. And, you know, just in terms of when we have these losses, we're losing some of those key aspects of that. We're challenging certain aspects of the production line and we're reducing that food quality. Do you know, I've spent 30 years in this industry, uh, Trent, and over the last, it's only over the last five years, I hope Dave will agree with me here, that the emphasis has gone away from producing volume to producing quality. That's the big change that I've started to see. We used to be able to drive more food by increasing the volumes of what we produce from land. Now, it's not just the volumes we need to look at. It's improving the soil structure to improve the quality of what we actually um, take from the from the land. And that's something that's changed very much so in the last five to six years, you know. Dave, please forgive him. He was on his walkabout when you gave us that speech about it's not yield in the field, it's a quality in the clamp. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, have, you not, have you not heard the old <laughs> adage, you tell them what you're going to tell them, you tell them what you've told them, and then you tell them again. All right? <laughs> Got it? I'm there now. I'm there. <laughs> you can never be told something good more than once. You should be told all the time because eventually it sinks in. Even, anyway, even for a guy who's half German? Yeah, well, everybody's got their drawbacks, Trent. That's the side of you. That's the side of you that won't sell a bale of hay. I know that. All right, Dave, go ahead. Oh, I've lost the plot now. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't watched a movie, have you? You see, you haven't watched a movie. That's the plot. We, we need to work out that the, the sequel is going to be when Trent starts his new, new um, hay selling business. But there you go. So he still has no clue where you're at. Dave, uh, I'm in a movie that's on Netflix right now. You can watch it today, tonight. You'll need something to do to get Andrew's issues out of your head. And uh, it's called The Stand Paxton County, inspired by true events. Uh, We were in the top 20 top watched movies on Netflix in the month of May. And Tom Gardner, the feller that I happen to play the movie, kind of sticks it to his best friend from a forage standpoint, if you know what I mean. So that's the plot right there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, but I, here, I, see, Dave, here's the thing. I didn't put the hay up correctly. It had some mold in it and some some growth. And I was afraid if I sold this to my friend <laughs> that it would contaminate his cows. So I thought Dale should get his hay somewhere else. I just didn't want to tell him because it's really hard. This is actually a true story. It's really hard to say I didn't put that hay or that silage up correctly. Consequently, I'm causing a problem. Ah, I know. And I think you've probably hit on a na- the nail on the head here. A very yeah, big nail on the head. Because that's the thing. We, we need to try and encourage farmers to want to uh, uh, be honest about some of their wastage because that's very hard to do, to stand in front of... What we do is we take the farmer through this whole clamp issue and, and then calculate for each individual farmers for their own use what their losses are and how much that's costing them. 
And I was afraid of doing that. And I, I don't know about you, Dave, when you started um, doing the, the doing the, the reckeys on the farm, what did you find the farmer's response was to us I've, going through that with them? I think the thing I found is it's such a simple system. We're measuring a few simple things that maybe farmers need to buy a couple of thermometers. They need to core silage, but that's it. And then they plug their numbers in. And if, you know, I'll just give you a figure um, for every one degree rise in temperature, we're losing a huge amount of energy in that clamp. And by measuring it, and it's one of the most visual things farmers can see is, is monitoring differences in temperature in different parts of their clamp. And in the past, they just accepted it. And when you can then measure the density, which again is a very simple thing, you um, steel pipe, core it into the silage clamp, weigh, weigh the silage out of it. Um, you can then calculate your density. Once they connect density to temperature rise, they can see it and they know what solves density, better compaction. Or on the top region of that clamp, reducing oxygen penetration. That's all about sheeting properly. And they're simple I- things. No, you, Andrew, you, you cannot, but you can when we come back with the second half of Roll Route. Andrew Henderson, Dr. Dave Davies, I'm Trent Lewis. It is Roll Route reminding you about the certified Piedmontese opportunity. We are artificially inseminating cows this week. That means that nine months from now we'll have new Piedmontese babies on the ground. There is a new double AI program. I'm not explaining that very well, but all I'm really trying to do is intrigue you to go to the website, get more details, and ultimately you'll call Marlon Will and say, what's Trent talking about? I don't use a bull at all, and yet you get paid better. You just need a, a wife with a good arm. Oh, that one's going to cost me. More details about getting involved with certified Piedmontese at LongCreekCattleCo.com. Second half of Roll Route right after this. Welcome back to Roll Route. Trent Lewis alongside my two buddies from the UK, Dr. Dave Davies and Andrew Henderson. Okay. I was speaking to um, a gentleman this morning who represents farmers who are in hard times in one of the parts of the UK. And so I was trying to explain what you just explained, Dave, this morning to this uh, newspaper editor. And um, when I started to talk about density, I did lose him. So what I wanted just to do for the listener is just to explain my, how I would explain the density thing so that perhaps somebody like Trent could understand it. Um, <laughs> so at the, at the middle of a clamp, you have the most weight. And if you core into that and you pull out a certain diameter that, uh, that Dave has worked out, you can then weigh that amount of forage. And then you find out that that's how much forage there is per cubic weight per cubic meter and normally a good consolidated clamp would have about 700 kilos or 1400 odd pounds of weight per cubic two yards in your in your uh, view but do you you understand what i'm trying to say it's 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 normally about 1400 pounds of weight now at the side of the clamp because it's been much more difficult for the tractor to get that weight on top of the clamp that same cubic meter can have less than half the forage. Now, the way the farmers have worked that out is when they see the weight is half when Dave pulls his core out or I pull my core out, and they can see it's also a bit warmer, so it's deteriorating. They've realized then for the first time the penny drops that they're actually throwing their own money off the side of the clump because when they feed the same amount of that forage every day, if they don't weigh it, they're actually feeding less than the animal needs. 
So there's two things here. There's the wastage in the first place. But they're also if they only take, for example, two grabs a day for the cows or for the one group of cows. When they do the middle of the clamp, they're getting twice as much as they are when they do the side of the clamp. And it's little things like that that the farmer immediately picks up on and thinks, I'm losing money. And that is why we are engaging with farmers in such a positive way. They actually love this. To my surprise, actually, they love this whole concept because they can see it. Okay. Did that explain it a bit or how did that go? No, no, that was good. It followed right in line with Ed Strathman's comment uh, that you probably can't see, but he says the scale on grinders and feed mixers changed U.S. agriculture forever. And that's a true story. And that's what you just said. When you can start measuring things, then you can see them. Yeah. And I know. Yeah. You, Go ahead, know Dave. In the USA, you've got uh, drive over piles more than you have clamps, but it's the same thing on a pile. You'll, you'll find much lower density around the edge of that pile um, in the top meter, meter and a half. And that's where significant proportion of those 15, 25% losses I was talking about exist and so once you start looking after those regions and doing things just a little bit different in those regions and calculating what what percentage of your silage is in those regions you start thinking about it and one of the comments that always used to really really gripe with me was you'd go on farm and the farm would say oh it's just a bit of waste on the top mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you look you look at that clamp and you think or you look at that pile and you think well that's 30 percent of your silage mm. and it, it then when you start saying things like that to them they start to really pay attention and think yeah, maybe that's right. Maybe I just need to do one or two very simple assessments. You yeah. know what else we do is that if we were to, uh, and I don't think I'm any different, if we were to get a 10% hit on our market price of the product that we produce, whether that be beef, pigs, chickens, or, <laughs> or milk, we would throw a fit. We would go to Facebook and it's ridiculous. We just lost 10% and yet we lose 10% in our feed supply. And it's an honor. Well, you just you you cracked it there, didn't you? Because that's what we're we're offering that solution um, of 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 exactly that the waste that, that Dave on it. We did a hundred trial farms, well, just under, and the average losses were between twenty and forty seven percent. Oh wow! That's 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 what we found. Now, and I. I I go back to what you said about us um, absorbing carbon. We don't want to absorb all the carbon, but just think about this trend. Um, it's it's oh, you only get the spoilage with oxygen because things multiply and breed in oxygen. So that's why we have to look at how we keep the oxygen out of that conserved forage until it's gone through the animal. So it's it's looking at things in a completely different way that are giving us this positivity for the future. Because let's face it, anything that has their natural diet from produced on the farm, because there's no miles in that, it comes from the farm. The more we can get consumption coming from the farm, the better it is for everybody concerned. Because as soon as you harvest something, it's deteriorating. It's a live right. thing. You've harvested, it's deteriorating. If you can get your milk, meat, eggs, whatever you think coming from local produce, then you're going to improve everybody's lives it's a real win-win you know uh dave i have to believe that there's somebody watching saying yeah this all makes sense so why don't you just leave the forages in the field and have the cows go graze them what's the difference that's a good point there's lots of issues around that particularly in parts of the world where you can't graze all year round um and one of one of my biggest issues is you know in the uk 
less so in the US, but in the UK, we have farms that graze grass in the summer, uh, feed cows housed in the winter. And those cows are probably the ones that are the worst in terms of efficiency. And I would much rather farms go down one route or the other where they're maximizing production from either grazed grass or from housed animals because then they set their system up, they make their system efficient. And actually, you know, in the house situation, we can produce more from that forage than we can in the grazing situation in a lot of climates because of either it being too hot, unsuitable for grazing when it's too hot in terms of in some situations, in the wetter regions, it's too wet and you cannot guarantee the intake on a grazed cow when it's, you know, from one day to the next. When, you know, this summer in the UK, we've been going from 35 degrees right down to 15, tons of rain, no rain. It's very difficult to get that efficiency. And at the back of my mind, I'm always thinking that there's a certain amount of energy that the cow needs for maintenance. Mm. And it's what we can produce above that maintenance that is important. And when we go down to some of these lower production systems, that maintenance energy, which produces methane, just like the um, energy that's used for production, it becomes a greater proportion of that. So your, your methane output per unit of food, meat or milk, is much greater. So I think we need to be careful of making a simplistic system, which I know why you said it, because there's lots of people think that cows out in fields are happy healthier and cows in, in sheds and often that's just not the case mm. i'd concur with that i think that what you what you're saying as well dave is you've got one area say dumfries where you have maybe 90 inches of rain a year and so it's very good to make sure that they would have um, get as much forage as they can and conserve it and feed their local forage in that way as a conserved forage and then you have the cheshire plains where i live where you do get grass from the end of February right the way through to the end of September. And it might well be that you might do a grazing round around a conserved forage for the winter. So really, it depends on where you are. But the key is maximising your production from the forage you produce, whether you consume it inside or outside. The key is looking at the weather pattern in your area and making the right call for the right system to maximise the utilisation of your energy and protein that you can grow on your farm and you know Simple. just coming back to that forage the forage input as a proportion of that ration has huge effects on fertility you know more forage better fertility better health of the cow better longevity and we take out all those methane emissions associated with rearing that animal when it's non-productive so there's there's lots of reasons why forage is the key to solving the issues that we're facing in the world Dave, I want to share with you my perceptions from my own beef cow herd in 2019. So I live in central Nebraska. Our annual rainfall is reportedly 20 to 22 inches a year, right? Last year, we had in excess of 80, 80 inches, four times normal. And so everybody was constantly saying, oh, man, you're lucky this year for grass, aren't you? I quite frankly think it was my worst year ever grazing and converting <laughs> that into beef. It was always my, ahead of them. That's why. Well, well, my cows were constantly on the move. They were never satisfied. And, and Dave, they do what uh, scientists in this country would call overeat. They continue to eat because there's so much water in every bite of grass. And it's partly because the grasses that we have, which normally uh, fill my cows up, are not used to 80 and four times the normal precipitation. So consequently, 
And my cows even changed. When we worked them last fall, they were huge bellied, just like they had just eaten a ton of something. But I, I have to believe if you could look at the, the metabolic efficiency of cows in that particular environment, it was horrible. And it, it flies in the face of what the common thought would be about more rain equal more grass, better for more cows. That's not yeah, the case. I'm, no, it's no, not the case. The, case. The, the, the problem is, is intake is limited by moisture content in your forage. And I know in the last two months in, in the UK, on one farm, the, the dry matter of fresh grass has gone from 15% up to 30%. No, and that can happen wow. over, you know, it, it's all about soil moisture and how much they're taking up as well as direct rainfall. And that then puts, it actually stresses those animals out because some days they'll be eating, you know, huge amounts to try and fulfill their dry matter intake. Other days they'll fulfill it easily. But, you know, it's, it's just variation in terms of your beef animal. That means there's variation in growth rates, different fat mm. depositions and, and inefficiency. Yeah. It's a great science, though, because we're learning about it all the time and how to how to compensate for those different situations, Trent. That's something that I think this is all part of these calculations we're now able to make, that when we see extra rainfall, you know, there will be a time when somebody would come to you and say, Trent, you need to think about this for your Piedmontese and, and how you would manage them slightly differently as a rancher in the coming years if you, if you had a, a year again where you had a very high rainfall or even a, a very low rainfall. That all will change people's strategy because at the end of the day, for example, here, we're trying to get round um, cutting grass every four weeks to maximise the value of the grass before it heads. As soon as it heads, it loses its its energy value. Now, if all of a sudden you can't get on because it's so wet that you can't actually get on the land, we have to rethink how we how we utilise that forage so so that it's still very high value for the animal. And those are the things that are are, are different to the way this industry worked maybe ten or fifteen years ago. And that's the exciting thing as well that we can look that way and, and make it such a positive outcome. And I agree completely. It all comes back to management. I could have managed those cows better last year, but here's the deal. If you guys would get me a climate calendar for what the weather's going to do and let me know whether <laughs> I'm going to have 15 inches or 80 inches in 2021, I'll be ready and can manage it however you want. So get me that and we're off and running. We need to take a break. Dr. Dave Davies, our guest today, Andrew Henderson, we will continue to talk about efficiencies. And I'm going to change the topic just a little bit. We're going to still talk about food waste, but you'll see. Andrew reminds you that we are in the middle of producing certified Piedmontese. Get more details about the genetics and the myostatin gene and the tenderness aspect of beef itself at LoneCreekCattleCode.com. One more segment of Roll Out right after this. Welcome back to Roll Routes, Trent Loose. Already into the final segments, Andrew Henderson checking in our across the pond version. Dr. Dale Davies, my guest. We've been talking about the efficiencies that have been acquired in food animal production. But you know what? As we've made food animal production more efficient than ever, guys, human food waste has skyrocketed. We now see where upwards of 40% of the food produced in the United States alone is wasted and goes into landfills. Yeah. Dave, you want to put that in some sort of a, a climate-friendly model and let us know what's really going on with that? Good luck with that, Dave. <laughs> well, to be honest, it frustrates the hell out of me. 
It, it frustrated him to the point where he locked up on us. Go, go ahead, Dave. Say that again, Dave. We missed it. Yeah, we missed that. Sorry, I, it, like I said, it frustrates the hell out of me that you've got these people driving where animal production should go, and it doesn't matter whether it's what type of food waste it is. It's it's criminal in modern society, mm-hmm. and we we need to be doing better with it. And it is a whole host of things that should be going on there, um, not least actually just buying what you need, but. When there is food waste, that does that should not be going into landfill. Um, I believe we do, we do need to do more with anaerobic digestion, um, but you know that's a solution to a problem that shouldn't exist. But it is the best way forward in terms uh, of where that goes. And you know, coming back to what you said about housed versus um, grazed animals, if if every farm had an AD plant, then housed animals would be much better for the environment because we could capture the energy from it. Um, I just think it's, it's, it's an issue that the, the, the consumer needs to address properly. But it's, it's not only the consumer, is it? It's also the supermarkets and, and the way they treat right. the, produ- the primary producer. Well, and it's, food service. I, I believe the large chunk of that food waste comes from the restaurant business. Yeah, I suppose we could have a handle on that with what's happened mm. in the last two or three months in terms of lockdown. Right. And, yeah, we could. And knowing what people – but then I think – well, if you take the UK, for example, when, when lockdown exists, first came in, people were buying way above what they needed, and it was all going out as food waste in packages untouched. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a major and, issue. And I'd also add, Dave, that uh, if it were not for animals today, and I can speak to the U.S. for this, because we do a, a decent job getting that food waste back into the food animal supply chain, yeah. uh, I think it would be well over half of the food produced. And, and so animals are part of that solution as well. Yeah, they are. The, the issue there is meeting, meet, mixing meats with vegetable waste, and obviously the UK's seen a lot of problems with that 20 years ago with BSE. Yeah. Um, which we, was, by the way, do not do that in the United States, just to be clear. We do not feed meat products back yeah. to food animals. But you've, you've got the consumer then that doesn't know how to separate the two from one another. It, it is an issue, but I think you know pigs and poultry, particularly pigs, have got a huge potential for consuming some of that um, mm. food waste. I, re- I remember it's a, a few. As well. Sorry, carry on, Trent. Go on. Well, I remember a few years ago at the Pennsylvania Farm Show, we had a tremendous uh, rural-urban display of educating people about where the food comes from, and there were pigs that were in gestation stalls, uh, which we don't need to get into that in this program. Uh, there were chickens laying eggs in cages. Re- all of this represented what was happening in today's world of modern food production through animals. And then down in the cow section, there was a cow and a calf. This was There was a dairy cow there as well, but this was a beef cow that had a cow and a calf. And I mentioned Pennsylvania Farm Show, Hershey, Pennsylvania is just down the road. There's a bit or two of byproduct that comes out of the Hershey chocolate plant. And so the beef folks had done a great job lining up eight different feedstuffs that we feed to beef cows in the state of Pennsylvania. And the most common sentiment that I heard that day, and it really was an awakening for me and people not understanding nutrition, is that every one of them would say, you feed our cows candy bars? <laughs> and the general, they didn't think about nutrition. They just yeah. thought about candy bars are bad. And so it's all about making sure that we utilize these nutrients instead of wasting them. That's the bottom line. Yeah, um, I wonder as well. I wonder as well how much of the waste is to do with the packaging as well, Trent. That, right. Um, 
the supermarkets and retailers. I mean, I'm not a great one for climate change, you know, but I am one who thinks that we are destroying our planet from a, from a plastic point of view. I think we need to do something very drastic about packaging. Um, and I think that will help reduce food waste in the future as well. If we can start to think about um, how we deliver the products to the consumer, because I think that's part of the problem. We have a lot of waste because of the packaging. Uh, uh, I think packaging is a huge part of the waste myself. Yeah. And I, and I think that's another area because that has to, that, that needs energy to be destroyed as well. And then maybe we, we're all hiding the truth here that there's actually money in this waste industry. And that's a part of the problem. Mm-hmm. That there are people that make money out of dealing with waste. And that is part of the problem as well. And that's where we've got to think, you know. Well, if there wasn't money, that's a double-edged sword because if there wasn't money in it, there would be a lot more. Okay. All right. Well, I, okay. That's a, I, I just get the feeling that sometimes that we, that we produce waste because maybe because it's keeping other people in a job. And I'm, I'm concerned about that as a, as an ideology really. Yeah. That's an interesting discussion. Mm. Uh, we're halfway through this last segment, Dave, anything in the bigger picture of food waste, feed waste, uh, we, we came with the premise that the true solution to climate change is the farmer. I'm often asked, how are you as a rancher dealing with climate change? Well, anybody who's been in agriculture, we've dealt with climate change from the day of birth to death. It's not anything new for us, but if we can help mitigate what we're putting into the atmosphere, it only makes sense for our profitability at our place. That's first and foremost, right? Absolutely. And I think I think rather than governments making farmers the foe, they need to befriend them and and look at measurements that are useful for both efficiency, economic efficiency, and climate change gases. And I think that's really where livestock farmers across the globe need to focus their attention on educating governments in actually having the right targets. And, you know, we've gone for a long period where the farmers have been blamed for all that methane emissions. And we just need to try and close that circle and then really start to engage with the consumers because they are powerful. And, you know, rightly so, they're being consumers. We need to listen to them, but we need to educate them properly rather than some of the things that are coming out in the press at the moment that don't stand up to scientific scrutiny. A lot of things coming out in the press at the moment that needs some scientific scrutiny. But that speaks to the real, the bigger problem in that, too many times people fall prey to a good notion rather than yeah, what's really based you know, just in Just coming science. back to Andrew's comment about plastic, one thing that horrified me just this last year was... That thing that was that... Should we cut him out or should we carry on? <laughs> just cut <laughs> you know, him Andrew out. Andrew said on. about plastic waste. And, I've um, lost it. I've heard of farmers not sheeting clamps up again because they, they see the plastic issue. Yet if you put the climate change mm-hmm. issues of not... Um, cheating a clamp and all the losses and carbon emissions from doing that, it soon becomes very clear that we should be actually sheeting correctly, but looking after that waste afterwards. And I think that's another part of the um, supply chain that on-farm plastics alongside consumer plastics needs to be managed more correctly and looking at the fuel use from it. Because after all, it comes from the oil industry. It could end up back as being a useful fuel, but with a secondary purpose for that. And I think that's where we really need to, again, focus government's attention Rather than thinking burning plastic is bad, having specific sites that can burn plastic um, in an environmentally friendly way and get all that energy out so that we're not burning nat- um, oil 
that's virgin oil. Andrew? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know that we had this conversation with Kim Brammer last week when she was saying that we need real science behind every decision that's made by governments with regards to food production. And, and medical information needs to go alongside that. And, you know, you were mentioning that people without peer review information were having an, a really negative influence on the dietary requirements of young children in America. Um, these things, we need to be a very powerful lobby and, uh, and talk to the governments about what really is the truth about nutrition and what's good for people. And um, I think that by adopting this approach with regards to forage utilization, for example, I think we can engage with the government and we can also prove that there are certain parts of the world that can be the food basket for many other parts of the world that perhaps can't produce this sort of clean, healthy food in an efficient way. So I, I do think that there are parts of the world that are really going to benefit from this because of the way we can efficiently produce healthy food. So I think there's some great things ahead, provided we can engage with the governments and make them listen. Uh, the only thing I want to amend, my, my amendment to what you said was that too many times we sit back thinking that some uh, group that we're a part of is going to lobby for us. I think each one of us need to lobby ourselves with our elected officials, with our neighbors, with our own family members. We each one just need to be better advocates for what it is that we've accomplished and what we can accomplish if we would just get government out of the way. That's the bottom line. I mean, the take-home <laughs> message for me today is what Dave said. Dave said that we, uh, rather than the governments making farmers the foe, they need to embrace what farmers can do to be the solution. That's Absolutely. the bottom line. It is. I'm on the same page as that, Trent. Dave, yeah. 30 seconds. Something profound to take oh, us home. Blimey. <laughs> <laughs> Keep up doing what you're doing, but do it better. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. Well, we number one, we have done a good job. Number two, we cannot rest on our laurels. We need to continue to forge ahead and find a way to be better. And uh, the economic pressures of today... If that's not motivation enough, Andrew, I don't know what is. I agree. Yeah, I agree too. Well, I guess we have expended our time. My thanks to Andrew Henderson, as always, for this across-the-pond version of Roll Route, Dr. Dave Davies, who will be coming to Nebraska soon so that he can give me that weather calendar for 2021 <laughs> and I know how to manage my cows to be efficient converters of forage into beef. We've, Bye, success we've successfully journeyed down the road connecting rural and urban America. All three of us remind you that all roads do lead to a rural route. I want to come back to the concept. Really, it was the theme of the entire conversation today, and that is the efficiencies that we are somewhat obligated, but more importantly, need to acquire to remain profitable. We can look at the waste in our feed supply. We can also look at the genomes available in the animals that we produce. Now, these genomes may determine performance traits that we want to have, including reproduction. If you have a bull that you want to know, uh, will his daughters be worthy of keeping? You can look at that when that calf is born and you know what the daughters will have in terms of a genetic potential. All of this is thanks to Neogen, shining a light on your genetic future. Get more details about how you can be a part of it. And technology usually 
it comes at a cost. The cost on this deal, I mean, we spend a minimal amount to test our bores so that we know exactly what we have. You can't afford not to. Can't afford to have that variation. That's what we do. Neogen.com. Get full details.